Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. I stepped on a rattlesnake's rattle, and now it's just a snake. It's high noon for Friday, September 11th, 2020. And of course, September 11th, is the anniversary of September 11th. It's now been 19 years since what was surely one of the worst days in American history. Uh, For me, I had just been working in New York City. I had stopped working in the city 10 days earlier and stopped living there. I moved out of my place. I was staying at my parents' house upstate until my job was starting in a few more days in Connecticut. I had been working for an ESPN subsidiary called Sports Ticker, and our office was in Jersey City. I had been working on a program, helping to beta test a program that would eventually become ESPN News' bottom line. And if you're a sports fan, you know what that is. If you're not, you probably still know what it is. It's where they scroll the scores down at the bottom of the screen. And up until that time, those scores that you would see on ESPN all came through Sports Ticker, which would get their information in from uh, sporting events around the country every few minutes, and then they would update on the screen. And so if you were a sports obsessive like me back then, you would turn on ESPN and just watch the bottom line for a few minutes until the score of your team showed up there. But no matter what it was, you always knew that it was going to be substantially behind whatever was actually happening. So it was not what we would consider a very effective means of following sports these days. So I was in the process of being transferred from Jersey City to Bristol, Connecticut, 
where I would be the first person to operate that system at ESPN's headquarters. And my job basically consisted of me sitting in an office at on ESPN's campus with, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 televisions in front of me. And I would watch sports and make sure that was at, that whatever was going out onto the air on ESPN News was accurate with the games. The system would uh, call in to scoreboards around the country and get their information directly, probably from like dial-up modems or something. But uh, I would basically just be at that office whenever sports were on. So I was there from 6 p.m. Eastern to 2 a.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday, so that I would get all of the 7 p.m. East Coast start times for all the sports and then the 7 p.m. West Coast start times for all the sports, which, of course, would be, you know, 10 p.m. on the East. And, you know, the average sporting event, depending on which sport it is, is anywhere between two and a half and three and a half hours. And so I would usually wrap up around 1.30 or 2. Then on Saturday, it was college football season, so... I would be there from 11 a.m., one hour before the game started on the East Coast. And then if Hawaii had a home game, I would be there till about 4 a.m., so that's 17 hours. And then Sunday, I would be there from noon till midnight for the NFL. And so that was, I don't know, 65, 70 hours a week. I think the math on what I just told you would be 69 hours a week. 69, dude. So that was my job, and I was supposed to start that job in the middle of September. It got pushed back a couple of weeks from 9-11, and so in the meantime, I was staying up at my parents' house, and I remember on that morning, I was still sleeping. I think the first plane hit, or I think it was 8-14 maybe, but somewhere around there, and I remember my mother coming into the room, waking me up. And like she seemed pretty, you know, shaken up. And she said to me that a plane had just crashed into the World Trade Center and it was crazy and I have to look at this. And so I, you know, I got up quickly and I came downstairs and not too long after that, the second plane hit. And a lot of us watched that live. Because, you know, so many people tuned in like I did to the news after the first one happened. And there were a lot of live video feeds just, you know, keeping an eye on the two World Trade Center towers. And watching the second one hit was absolutely chilling. And I mean that like in a literal way. I can remember um, just this cold feeling washing over me like goosebumps and it was horrifying and for the next few months it was just impossible to take your eyes off the television at least it was for me and I was not quite around the clock but every chance I got I was watching the news to find out what was going on I was watching the White House press conferences, watching Ari Fleischer tell us what's going on. 
talking about the ricin attacks because people started getting um, powder in envelopes in the mail. And I think they believed it was ricin. I don't know how that ever – it's been too long. But that was a real kind of life-changing moment for the country and for many people in the country um, throughout – this is one year after college for me. I, I graduated in 2000, and then it was the, uh, the summer of 2001 where I was living down in New York City and started the job with ESPN – and throughout college, and then for kind of that year after, I was dating a girl from Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. So I had spent a lot of time in the city. And her brothers, two of her brothers' best friends died in the towers. And I remember being in New York City with her at a memorial of sorts for them. It was like a, a gathering at a bar. And it was one of those moments for me that was kind of surreal because all of them were touched in a way that was more personal than the way I was. And I feel like I was definitely personally touched by this. I had been traveling to Jersey city from my West village apartment every day by going, I, I would take the train from the West fourth station down to the world trade center and then transfer trains to go under the river to Jersey city. And who knows? I mean, I don't, you know, I wouldn't go to work in the morning, so I wouldn't have been in any immediate threat there. But that was part of my commute was being in the World Trade Center. And then I don't know if you've never been to Jersey City, especially while those buildings were there. Jersey City is right across the river. And I remember looking out the windows of that office building and it was the kind of thing where you had to strain your neck just to be able to see the top's of the world trade center buildings. They were that tall. And my time in the city has been very limited since then. So I can't speak to how the city is now in regard to that at all. But that was my memory of the event. And it was sad and it was horrifying and it, led to so many events in American life, some of them good, but many of them very bad. And it's led to limits on our freedom. It's led us into wars that were likely very unnecessary and fracturing of our culture, spying on citizens. I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm doing the event justice or not, but that was my story. So let's switch gears to stuff that isn't as serious. Um, yesterday, Trump was addressing the Bob Woodward stuff. He had a press event where he was asked by one of 
by I think Jonathan Carl, ABC's Jonathan Carl. Like, why did you lie to the American people? Blah blah blah. And Trump rightly said that's a disgraceful question because it is a disgraceful question. Okay. There are different ways to interpret events. It is entirely possible that Trump's actions are not being interpreted in the right way by the media. And so they don't get to just declare that he's lying because they can't prove that he's lying. They can't prove that something he said was dishonest. Even Anthony Fauci, remember, said that Trump did not distort anything for the public. So if they want to say that there was a lie, then they should have to prove the instance of lying. They can't call a different interpretation of events or an intentional uh, kind of emotional outward display of fortitude and calmness and confidence. And listen, you can judge those things for yourself, whether or not Trump actually displayed those. And I mentioned revisionist history, my podcast episode on the coronavirus. And at the very beginning of that, I start with a speech that could have been written for Trump to give instead of the messaging that he did give that would have been more responsible, more accurate and less inclined to stoke fear. But that's not who Donald Trump is. He says what he thinks in the moment. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. It clearly didn't help. The way he communicated about the coronavirus did not help the coronavirus response. The things he did in regards to the coronavirus were much better than the things he said and the way those things he said played. Okay. One of the problems with Trump still communicating this way is that he has to know by now that whatever he says is going to be cut up and manipulated to make him look bad. That started in 2015. It hasn't stopped at any point. The goal is to make Trump look bad. And there was an example of it yesterday from that very press conference. Trump was making a point about how the media in the room could be covering things. And he said, you know, I watched this Fox host. I watched that Fox host. I watched that Fox host. I watched that Fox host. He listed like five of them and was talking about how they have no problem reporting things in a different way. And so what the media did, these responsible folks in the media like Aaron Rupar, they take the little cut of Trump listing the Fox News shows that he watches and then try to make it out like Trump was reporting that he watched eight hours of Fox News yesterday, which is not what he said. And the context makes it clear. But they don't care about context and they don't care about accurately representing him. And that's the worst, most disgraceful part of them declaring that he's a liar because they're lying all the time. It really is disgraceful. And this is tough. 
in a media environment like this because the stuff spreads so fast. It spreads so quickly among the people who want to believe it. And I talked a little bit about this yesterday, but a clip like that reinforces a narrative that Donald Trump is obsessed with the media, the way the media talks about him and constantly watching television. This is the same as the uh, that he's always up in the middle of the night sitting on the toilet tweeting narrative. It might just be that he's working around the clock. Could be that. But no, it's got to be the media thing because everyone knows that that's how Donald Trump is. It's amazing how many things everyone knows that they can't prove at all. They can only prove it on other rumor, other innuendo, other circumstantial evidence, which is not evidence. But this is what they do. And so out of this, out of this uh, press conference and these stories, they began to make the claim that Trump was blaming Bob Woodward for the coronavirus response. And of course, that fits the narrative that Trump doesn't like to take responsibility. But of course, he didn't say that because no one would say that because no one thinks that. And Donald Trump doesn't think that. And Donald Trump didn't say that. But the media can say he said that while calling him a liar. That's where we are. What Trump said was, if Bob Woodward actually thought that this thing was so scandalous and so controversial, this thing he said, then why didn't he come out with it then? If Trump wasn't taking the disease seriously and he was lying to the American public, why didn't Woodward come out with that then and force Trump to redirect himself. That's the point Trump was making, and it's very clear in what he said. And like so many other narratives the media pushes, they take a possible interpretation of the literal words totally out of context. And invent what he said and meant. No reasonable, rational person would have watched what Trump said in that passage about Bob Woodward and come to the conclusion that Trump thought it was Bob Woodward's responsibility to have stopped him. No, that's a complete misdirection. It is focused on the wrong part of what Trump said. The right part was the if you thought it was so dangerous part. Because, of course, Bob Woodward didn't think it was so dangerous. And it wasn't so dangerous. And Trump said it publicly a few days or a week later. I can't remember the exact dates. You can look them up. If you want to challenge me, I will look them up. Okay. But I'm trying to just go with the flow here. And so he made 
and obvious point of logical argument saying that Bob Woodward himself knew that this was not a big deal. This thing I said. That's correct. That is a correct point to make. And the thing that he said was proof of that point because Bob Woodward, the revered, responsible journalist would have had a moral obligation to tell the public about that rather than waiting six months on the eve of the election and on the eve of his book coming out. That's the point Trump made. Not that Bob Woodward was somehow operating the coronavirus response. This is how little respect the media has for the American people. They take these things out of context, use them to claim the exact opposite of what they meant, and then assume that everyone hates Trump so much that either they will never bother to find out for themselves what he actually said, or that even when they're presented with contrary evidence, real evidence, that you can look at on video and think about with your functioning human brain that they'll just ignore it and continue believing the narrative. And lo and behold, that's exactly what people do. And that's why Trump's not winning 90 to 10 right now. Here's a a little media nugget for you to think about, you know, and this is part of the, uh, the reason why people think Trump is playing ahead of the media all the time and manipulating them. And you see something like this and it's real hard to ignore that theory. All right. You have to believe that Trump is always dumb and always lying and always careless and never paying attention to believe the stuff the media says. Right. Or you can believe that Trump is this great genius. Maybe he is. And I say that because he became the American president with everything going against him and then spent now almost four years in office with everything going against him and trying to destroy him. And he damn well may win again. So you can't be stupid and do that. Okay. But so Trump was nominated for the. Nobel Peace Prize, Priest Prize, Priest Prize, Peace Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize by a Norwegian guy with a Norwegian name that I don't want to try to say. And so the Trump campaign made made a graphic and tweeted it out um, where they spelled Nobel noble. Okay. Now Trump has done that before in his tweets. The media makes the story that the people in the Trump campaign are too dumb to fix that spelling error. And so dumb that they would make a spelling error like that in the first place. Perhaps they are. Alternatively, They may have put that out 
so that every single one of these woke media activists from the New York Times and the Washington Post and MSNBC and CNN and everyone else, the Daily Beast, would try to make fun of this post, thereby telling all of their audiences that Donald Trump was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. See how that works? They are amplifying his message while thinking that they are, quote unquote, because I fucking hate this word, dunking on him. They think that they are making Trump look like a fool while they are telling the millions and millions of followers that they have all across the board that Trump was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, which is something that their papers and news outlets did not cover at length, that they were not tweeting about. So is Trump the dummy here? Are Trump's people the dummies here? Because Trump just forced a story that the media did not want to tell about him into the media's narrative. What do you think people are going to pay attention to more? The fact that Trump was indeed nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize for what he did with normalizing relations between the United Arab Emirates and Israel. By the way, he did the, uh, the Serbia-Kosovo thing last week. And today he's done Bahrain. So he is ushering in the potential for peace in the Middle East and was nominated for a Nobel Prize for that. The media did not want to tell anybody about that. And so to tell everybody how dumb he was, they inadvertently told everybody that he was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. And he's the dumb one. He's the dumb one. Yep, he's the dumb one. I'm continually amazed to see people take the Lincoln Project seriously and the Republican voters for Trump, all that stuff seriously. These guys are like George W. Bush era neocon hacks, okay? They're not principled conservatives. They're campaign guys who have run campaigns for like Mitt Romney, uh, Jeb Bush. Like Tim Miller's one of like the Jeb Bush guys from 2016. These guys are losing campaign advisors. And now they are there to create content for people who, for, for liberals and centrists and progressives, blah, 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 who are so uninformed and so stupid that they believe their opinions are buttressed by the fact that even conservatives agree with them. That's what they tell people. That's what they think. Oh, look, even these staunch conservatives, these lifelong conservatives agree with us. Trump is stupid. Ha <laughs> No, these people are political hacks. They're getting paid a hell of a lot of money 
and they are tricking you because you are too dumb to look up issues and you prefer to have your own thoughts regurgitated to you in glossy video. Whether this is going to be effective remains to be seen, but it is not principled. And that is for goddamn sure. And the funny thing that all these people don't get, and even like the really brilliant people in the center, the center left, the center right, a lot of them can see how fucked up things are, especially with the media, um, corporate influence, problems in the academy, every bit of the old guard, tech censorship, all that. They can see and diagnose all of those problems, but they can't make the final step realizing that all of those corrupt, dishonest, broken institutions are where they get their own view of Donald Trump. They can't see that all of those institutions are lined up to destroy Donald Trump. They are okay with all of that so that they can preserve their self-image as someone who would never consider voting for Donald Trump. They just can't get past the last step. And the problem is they continue to misdiagnose everything about the campaigns because they can't bring themselves to think that Donald Trump isn't the problem. They believe that after Donald Trump is gone in January, which he won't be, that everything is going to write itself, that they are going to be able to double down on their critiques of the universities and of the media and everything else. And they will just be able to swim and float by just on down the stream until the next election. But they're not because they're going to be wrong again for the same reasons they were wrong in 2016. And it has to matter at some point whether or not these people are right. It doesn't matter what school they went to or what their credentials were or whose campaigns they worked on or who they wrote speeches for or how many books they've read or how much they can tell you about conservative theory. I'm not saying these people aren't smart. They are smart. They, I'm saying that they have a mental and emotional block. Between them and accepting that Trump is not the evil person he's believed to be. They can't get past it because it would make them doubt too many other things about their own judgment and their own personalities and their own ability to discern right from wrong. It would also change their judgment about the value of their intellectual knowledge. Because being smart only works and only helps if it informs you toward right decisions. Again, this is the problem with the public health community right now and guys like Anthony Fauci. Giving Anthony Fauci all the benefit of the doubt that there was nothing corrupt or malign going on in Anthony Fauci's head. He still believes that he is smarter than a virus. And he's not. They went against all of the past guidance about how to handle pandemics, all of it. And they did this in conjunction with politicians who believed all of the intellectual basis of their principles of government, 
even though they're wrong. Look at California. Okay. I just want to say this and I don't want to beleaguer it because I have a few more things to get to before I wrap up. But look at California. California is proof of the absolute failure of the progressive political mindset of leftist corporatism, of all these things, of wokeness. It is a failure. It had to fail, just like the elites had to fail. Because they keep believing that they will be able to create culture that matches their own worldview. But their worldview is based on an overconfidence in their own ability to know everything. So last night, the NFL began. And this is a perfect example of the failure of the elites because constantly elite institutions are trying to appease elite Twitter and elite Twitter is constantly trying to appease the wokest people on the planet because they know that those people can cost them their jobs at any moment. And they believe wrongly that they can co-opt this communist movement and use it to their own benefit to gain political power. And they think that once Biden and Harris are in there, then their needs will be served. By the way, those are corporate needs. Those are military needs. Trump is without question the most anti-war president since at least Jimmy Carter. He talks about it all the time. No one knows that, of course, because the media won't say that. If the media wanted to try to create a scandal this week, why didn't they go after Trump for taking on the military industrial complex? They left it alone completely. Trump flat out said in his Labor Day address, that he was not liked by high-ranking military officials in the military bureaucracy, not the soldiers, not the active duty generals, the people in the military bureaucracy. He said they didn't like him because he doesn't like war. And then no one makes the money on the military-industrial complex. He said it. No one covered it. Why? And of course, you can look at the professional sports leagues that are all being taken to the cleaners right now. People are tuning out and for good reason, because not everything needs to have shitty politics mixed in with it. And the NFL made that mistake last night. And for the first time in this period, there have been uh, fans in the audience for a sporting event. You know, they were socially distanced. I think the stadium was like 25% full or something, right? But the NFL decided to do a Black Lives Matter moment of unity at the beginning of the game. And the Chiefs stayed in the locker room. Or was it the Texans? God damn it, I don't care. One of the teams stayed in the locker room. The other team was out for the national anthem. And 
the quote unquote moment of unity was booed by the entire stadium as it should be because black lives matter. The organization is a scam and a communist organization that is trying to alter American society and doesn't give two shits about saving black lives or they would be doing everything different. They have a domestic terrorist on the board of directors for their fiscal sponsor, Thousand Currents. No one knows where their money goes. This is a Democratic Party get out the vote effort at best. And a subversive communist plot at worst, at worst. And by the way, it's at worst. So they booed. Leftist Twitter went crazy because, of course, that's a sign of white supremacy, not wanting to be coerced into participation in a cultural movement that you disdain. I'm not getting up and cheering for that moment of unity. That's not a moment of unity. That's a moment of complicity. They want to make sure that everyone complies or else we can locate all the dissenters and punish them. It's disgusting. People aren't stupid. They can see that in front of their faces. This would have happened two months ago if fans were allowed into normal arenas. This has been now what? May, June, July. Oh, no, no, May. Sorry, June, July, August. We're now at about three and a half months since George Floyd died. And by the way, there are rumors that Derek Chauvin is going to have the charges uh, dropped against him. And I think that that's probably very likely and unfortunately for the culture, probably very just. And that's because George Floyd died from a drug overdose. He took fentanyl while he was trying to hide it from the cops. It is on video. It is in the coroner's report. It is unquestionable that George Floyd was not murdered by Derek Chauvin. Okay. Sorry. It's just true. And it's going to be true. No matter when the charges get dropped, if it happens soon, Obviously, that's going to be another crisis point that we're going to have to deal with. But it's coming sooner or later. You cannot convict that man for second degree murder. And remember, Keith Ellison upped the charges to make it more serious for his audience while hiding the body cam footage. Now the body cam footage is out. Now the autopsy is out. There's no chance that Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd. If you want to say he used excessive force or that they should have been more inclined to get an ambulance there or anything like that, fine. Okay. I'm happy to talk about all those possibilities. But one thing that does not seem to be a possibility is Derek Chauvin getting convicted for second degree murder. And people know that now. The sympathies are different now. But the movement has not declined at all. It has not pulled back at all. It has not checked any of its claims at all. It's full steam ahead. And people will have a problem with that. 
And they are justified in having a problem with that. NFL fans do not want to be preached to while watching football. But the left, the elites, the technocrats, all these people think that their preaching is so right and so righteous that if they just keep battering everyone over the head with it, they'll buy in. So there's an Adidas commercial starring Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback of the Chiefs, maybe the best player in the NFL right now. Kid's a star. Good for him. He's excellent at what he does. But this commercial is fucking deplorable because all it is is talking about the unity and the protests. And he actually says peaceful protests in them. People do not like to have people in positions of power lie to their faces about what they can see with their own eyes. Are we supposed to imagine that after all this time, we're still going to like rise up in support of Patrick Mahomes' commercial because it's about justice? What? NFL fans aren't the ones retweeting commercials on Twitter, sharing them on Facebook because of how justice-oriented they are. Sports fans want this shit to stop. And no, the solution is not to give in to the demands of people whose primary motivations are things like the destruction of the nuclear family, which Black Lives Matter has no problem saying that they do desire. I'm not making this up, okay? And so then Joe Biden's brilliant campaign decides to run a Joe Biden commercial, an anti-Trump commercial during football. Is that what NFL fans want to see? Are they convincing new voters that Joe Biden isn't, A mental invalid at this point? No, of course they're not. They're just putting political advertisements into football, which no one wants to see. And speaking of how bad Joe Biden's campaign is. He had a surrogate named TJ Ducklow go on Fox News last night and uh, with Brett Baer. And everyone should watch this. It's about a seven minute long clip. Definitely worth watching the whole thing. And I don't watch a hell of a lot of Fox News. I watch Tucker Carlson with some regularity, but none of the rest of them. And from what I know, Brett Baer is like they're kind of playing it straight. Uh, No one knows his politics. Just down the middle journalist prepared to ask hard questions to both sides. Right. And he does from what I've seen. So TJ Ducklow is on there and he is refusing to answer multiple questions. Pretty much every question Brett Baer posed to him. He asked him, you know, Joe Biden has said that uh, 
Trump had a terrible response to the coronavirus, what specifically would Joe Biden have done differently? T.J. Ducklow refused to answer that question. He kept rerouting to campaign talking points saying, let's be clear over and over again, which is a very, very Orwellian phrase that Joe Biden uses all the time. Okay, let's be clear makes it sound like whatever they're about to say is particularly honest and important. And it rarely is. It's bluster and it's talking points. And they'll say that they're not going to get bogged down in this media narrative or that they're not going to respond to Trump campaign talking points, which is exactly the answer that he gave when Brett Baer asked if Joe Biden had been reading the answers to questions off a teleprompter. T.J. Ducklow refused to say no to this. If your campaign and your candidate is being accused of reading off a teleprompter or reading off some sort of other screen, because everyone can see that that is, in fact, what he is doing. And you don't say no with an explanation immediately. Sorry, you're guilty. Joe Biden is quite clearly reading the answers to live interview questions off a screen. Now, a lot of people are saying it's a teleprompter. I don't believe that it is. I believe that he's literally getting messages in in real time from his campaign. And they're trying to write them in his voice so that he says them while sounding like himself. You can watch it happen. This is not a conspiracy theory. It is obvious. But watch that T.J. Ducklow interview. This is how Joe Biden's campaign is handling questions about Joe Biden's fitness for office. And uh, two things before I wrap up. One of them, it happened right after I finished recording yesterday. And I was I actually thought uh, about going back. And inserting it somewhere, but I was like, nah, I, don't, I like the natural feel. I like it when it's au naturel. So LA, LA's um, public health director, Barbara Ferrer, not only I talked yesterday about how she had canceled Halloween and then reinstated Halloween after people got mad. Right after I got off air, I'm not really on air. You can't really say you're on air. Unless you're broadcasting, right? But right after that, audio came out of a conversation that she was having telling people that they should expect public schools not to open until after the election. She repeated this multiple times. And this is the sort of brazen, justifiable honesty that political hacks will use in private conversation with other political hacks so that they can know and plan what is going on around the political calendar. So the education of the next generation of Los Angeles County youth is being screwed out of their education for the election. I have covered this at length. So a lot of you know where I stand on this. I talked about it at length 
in uh, the Apocalypse Now episode. I talked about it in Controlled Demolition. Schools have been closed to extract political priorities and political concessions from Republicans and from Donald Trump. They have pinned coronavirus relief to the demands of teachers unions to mail in balloting and to bailouts for blue states like California, where the budget crisis is unimaginable. Same thing in New York. Andrew Cuomo and Gavin Newsom have no political future. If Donald Trump wins, their states have been so mismanaged. Their budgets have been so mismanaged that their careers are over if they don't get bailed out. So what they want is a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate so that the relief package can be passed with a trillion dollars worth of bailouts for states. Your lives are being held hostage. Your jobs are being held hostage. Your children's futures are being held hostage by Democrats, not Republicans, not Donald Trump. Not political obstruction by Democrats, by choice, because this is what they do. The last thing I want to talk about. And this is going to be the thing that will ultimately win Trump the election because people are going to realize what many of us who were former Democrats realized and that and that is apart from whatever Donald Trump was or who he was in his life before politics, which is constantly overstated. No one can ever talk about any of the good things that Donald Trump did before he got into politics. But the last two rallies he's held, North Carolina on Tuesday and Michigan last night, a chant has arisen from the crowd. And that chant is, we love you. We love you. And they do it for a while. Trump actually said last night, he's like, oh my God, you're going to make me cry. Like, thank you. Nobody needs to see a president cry on TV, but thank you. Thank you. That means so much to me. All right. And what that is, a re, is a reflection of the narrative that the left has no idea about, but that all those really smart centrists and center right and center left, those people that I was talking about before, the ones who can uh, diagnose all the problems everywhere, except when it comes to Trump, they have a pretty full understanding of everything except the stuff that relates to Trump. That's the bit they don't understand. Because the realization that I have had and that many other Trump supporters have had, including many in 2016 who were trying to tell people like me that they saw something that I wasn't seeing, they were right. When thousands of people are chanting, we love you, it's not enough anymore to say that they are racist or sexist or stupid or homophobes. None of that is true. There is genuine affection 
for that man because they have watched for five years every single old guard institution try to tear the man down using whatever they could use, no matter how immoral, no matter how dirty, no matter how dishonest. They watch him be torn down by these people and still stand right in their face and tell them they're wrong. And everyone, nearly everyone, can see the problem with all these institutions. If the most powerful people and the most powerful institutions in the world are all lined up against one man, who do you think is morally right? Who do you think is factually right? Just knowing what you know about how the world operates. Trump's not some caped superhero. He's one man who was a private citizen until four years ago. Why is every institution of power in the country and abroad trying to destroy this man? Why do they need all that power to destroy him? If he could be destroyed by truth and honesty and people paying attention to reality. But people love him because he stood up. And he has made these institutions break themselves, particularly the media and the Democratic Party. This is what I said would happen in April when I realized that everything was being viewed through the lens of whether it helped or hurt Donald Trump. And now it is coming to pass. The country is improving in every way. Sports are being played. Football's back. College football is back, except in states like Michigan, where Gretchen Whitmer is imprisoning her people. The economy is improving dramatically. The best they have now are old scandals that aren't even scandals that they drum up from years ago or months ago in these special books that are just about to come out. That's what they're going on because their candidate is a dead guy who may not even be able to show up for any of these debates. Again, why are they pushing early voting so much early mail-in voting? Why? Because there is a damn good chance that Joe Biden is going to drop like a rock between now and the election. And if everyone had to vote on November 3rd, the likelihood of them voting for Joe Biden by that point, if he has to debate Trump, if he has to answer questions spontaneously without an earpiece or a teleprompter, it's over. If anything from the Durham report comes out the way people think it will, if there are indictments at a high level, if this stuff comes back to John Brennan like it probably will, to Barack Obama, to Joe Biden, to Hillary Clinton, to Adam Schiff. If that's what's coming down the pipe in the next seven and eight weeks, seven or eight weeks, Biden's finished. So of course they want the votes in so that people can't change them. All right. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Listen to more Hope's Fall. 
Goodbye. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and give it a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts so new listeners can take your word for it. You can follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at I'm Your Moderator. If you have feedback, you can email heymoderator at imyourmoderator.com or use the hashtag heymoderator on Twitter. If you'd like to support the show, search Be Reasonable on Patreon, where I'll have additional daily-ish segments in a special podcast feed of the show, as well as my writing and audio readings of those articles. You can also go to anchor.fm slash be reasonable and become a supporter there. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Be reasonable. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at imyourmoderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel-couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon, down on the range.